Welcome to MDASH, the healthcare podcast that gives you pause. Today's episode, The Addiction Nobody Will Talk About, featuring Joshua Shea. Hi, Joshua. Welcome to MDASH. Thank you very much for having me. Tell us a little bit about yourself. What are some of the words you use to describe yourself in terms of your identities? Um, well, you know, that's always a dangerous thing to ask somebody who's been diagnosed with a narcissist disorder. But, um, you know, I, uh, I'm somebody who is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a creative, hardworking, driven, passionate person who does not have the greatest history of uh, always putting those towards forces of good and not evil and uh, not always making the best decisions. Um, but, you know, I, uh, you can, you can call me whatever you want. You can identify me however you'd like. I, uh, you know, sometimes I prefer your highness, but whatever makes you happy. I responded just about anything. Pronouns that you like used when people are referring to you? Uh, you know, just typical he, him, okay. that guy, stuff that, you know, hopefully can be used on PG rated television. Tell me a little bit about what's going on with you today, because today's a big day and it really ties in also with um, what you're going to be talking about today. Yeah, today um, we're recording this on uh, January 10th. This is the official release date of my book. Uh, which is called The Addiction Nobody Will Talk About, How I Let My Pornography Addiction Hurt People and Destroy Relationships. Um, it's a memoir, my first full-length memoir, where I take a look uh, really at the time frame, starting with my brother's uh, first wedding, uh, where I was reunited with a friend of mine, that friend and I went on to launch a regional magazine in central Maine that ended up being very, very popular. Uh, the book kind of talks about the rise and fall of the magazine, or it's set among the rise and fall of the magazine, while at the same time, it's the rise and fall um, really of my mental health, spiritual health, physical health, um, how I just did not take care of myself and uh, some, you know, ghosts of my past, including uh, trauma from abuse. Uh, uh, my alcoholism uh, reared its ugly head again and got very bad. A porn addiction that I'd never really faced uh, reared its ugly head and, you know, headed uh, toward um, illegal use of pornography with uh, chat rooms and downloading of some files that uh, started to go below the age of 18 with the females. And I was really, it's a, it's a book that shows I was really too sick to even notice what was going on. And I'm hoping with the book, telling my story in a non-preachy, non-judgmental sort of way that people who may find themselves in a state where they wonder if they have a porn addiction, but don't see themselves as the stereotype, or maybe see somebody in their life who they think may be a porn addict, but they don't follow a certain stereotype, that they can look at this book and see that I certainly wasn't the stereotype. I was a very uh, successful publisher and uh, journalist for years. I 
was a local politician in my hometown. Uh, I, I served on my city council. I launched a film festival in central Maine, which was one of the uh, largest that Maine ever had. I was very well known. I was not the person who I think most people have in their head when they think about porn addict. And uh, like somebody who lets their addictions get too far, whether it be the gambling addict who loses the family's house or the kid's uh, college fund or the you know drug addict who maybe starts you know stealing from grandma to fund their habit, um, my addiction uh, led to some very dark places. And uh, that included uh, talking to... Uh, females who were not yet 18 and uh, not really recognizing just how bad it was at the time. And thankfully, uh, the police got involved. And this is the story of how it basically led from the day I started the magazine to the day that I got arrested. So you said, thankfully, the police got involved. And I, I read your book and found it captivating, really, really well done, um, well written, and just very, very engaging throughout. Uh, when you said, thankfully, the police got involved, that reminds me of something you had said in the book, really, a sense of relief around the arrest. Um, talk to me a little bit about why it, why it's why you're thankful that the police got involved? Because I, uh, you have to understand exactly where I was at that moment. Um, I wasn't a you know raging porn addict twenty four seven. I had put myself into a corner uh, after years of uh, really just driving myself to an early grave, trying to make this company work, trying to have uh, my magazine be the best it possibly could, while at the same time managing a film festival, while at the same time uh, trying to be a, a servant to the city with uh, my, my work on the city council. And this is not to mention the fact that I had a wife and two kids at home. Uh, trying to juggle all of this, I stopped sleeping. I started drinking a lot more. I, instead of, uh, you know, your typical functional uh, intimacy that you'd hopefully have with your spouse, um, that was completely not happening with me. And I was using pornography as that crutch. I started to actually even use it um, when everything was going bad in a very narcissistic way to build myself up by trying to get women in chat rooms to take off their clothes or perform sex acts for me, uh, really more as a power move than a move of any uh, uh, sexual gratification. Uh, all of these things were happening at the same time. Uh, I was just a mess and at rock bottom. And I could have tried to deal with any one of these things. Um, at the time that I was arrested, I had actually slowed down a lot on the uh, pornography use for a couple months. I was, I was only two weeks away from holding the latest version of the film festival when I was arrested. Um, my magazine was swirling the drain. I don't know what was going to happen with that. I don't know how I was going to fix my uh, relationships with my wife and kids. It was just so much at one time that I didn't know how to tackle it. 
And when the police showed up that day, that was just kind of like the intervention that I needed because I had already been confronted by coworkers about things that I were doing. I had business partners bail on me in the months leading up to my eventual fall. Um, I, you know, had family members. The day before I was arrested, my mother looked at me and said, you look like you're going to die. And I, and I said that it's, I'm just busy with the film festival. That's all. Um, the picture of my mugshot is the most unhealthy picture I've ever seen of myself. Um, I weigh about 30 pounds more than I currently do in it, but I don't think I'd showered in 10 days leading up to it. Um, my skin looks like, you know, I used sandpaper on it a few times a day. Uh, it was an unhealthy mess. And I don't know, short of having a massive health issue or police involvement, how I could have got back on the right track. And that's why I say, um, you know, thankfully it happened. And even at the moment it happened, while I knew that was going to change everything, and I didn't know exactly what that everything was going to be, I knew it had to be better. Now, when you were arrested and when you um, began seeking out help for the addiction, how did healthcare professionals respond? Um, and how did you go about asking for help? Was it while you were incarcerated? Was it afterwards? How did you connect with yeah, that? Help? I was uh, arrested on March 20th, uh, 2014. And the next day I met with uh, the man who would eventually be my lawyer for the first time. And, uh, you know, we he asked me, is this going to be about uh, litigation or is this going to be about sentencing? And I knew that I was nailed. So I said, this is, mm -hmm. this is going to be about sentencing. And he said, what we need to do is to build a case that shows that you are a pillar of the community, that you did something very out of character for yourself, that there are reasons you did it, and that you're going to do everything possible to make sure it doesn't happen again. And I had no previous record, had never been in trouble with the police or anything, and he thought that if we could put together some kind of resume for the judge that showed that I um, was addressing an issue, uh, that, that, that would be good. And he asked me if, you know, I thought that I drank too much and I didn't want to come out and say yes, because I'm, I'm the kind of guy who says, well, too much is subjective. So right. no, I don't drink too much because, you know, I think about a drunk or I grew up thinking about a drunk and I get pictures of cartoons with a guy literally laying in the gutter with a bottle that has, you know, two X's mm -hmm. on it. And that was never, that was never the guy that I, I was, I, if, if anything, I was funct a functional drinker and yes, I probably drink a little too much, but uh, hey, if this is going to look good for the judge, let's do that. So um, unfortunately, the insurance that I had wasn't great, so I didn't have a lot of choices when it came to going to a rehab, but I didn't think it mattered because I didn't think I had a problem um, when, it, when it actually came to drinking for what the uh, stereotype of a alcoholic was in my mind. Uh, I ended up going out to California, and it took me only about six, seven days to realize, wow, I actually am the full-on alcoholic that these people are talking about, and I didn't know anything about alcoholism. 
Um, I really wasn't at that point ready to address the sexual side of things um, because I I didn't think I had a problem with that at all. I knew that I drank a bit too much. Um, what I thought was going to be four weeks in rehab ended up being 10 weeks. And I started to talk to some uh experts when it comes to uh, uh, behaviors with sexuality and started looking at what really my drinking was about. And that's something that I had done since I was 15 or 16 years old. Um, and that's where it started. And I, I look at some of the counselors that I dealt with uh, at that point at the rehab, and they were just magnificent. I'll tell you the ones who were the most magnificent were the ones who had been through it themselves. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think there's really something to be said for having actually experienced addiction, um, understanding uh, how it feels and what somebody's going through and the stories that you tell yourself about it. Um, and they they really got this, uh, and it was it was a uh, fantastic eye opening experience. I had never been around another twenty five people who or you know, had struggled with with drugs or alcohol. Um, you know, I saw people who had relapses in front of me. I saw people who had stories that were far worse than mine and really got to know them on a one-on-one -on -one basis. And I mentioned this in the book that, you know, on paper, you wouldn't think putting 30 very broken people together would have a positive result. You think it would have the exact opposite, but uh, those those ten weeks in Palm Springs, California, were were absolutely transformational, and I needed those to jumpstart my uh, the beginning of my healing. Um, when I returned to Maine, I got into very serious therapy. Uh, I started going to uh, uh, twelve step groups around here. Um, and I let the legal system work its way. I started, you know, both in California, then I was back here. I, I began uh, taking risk assessments, um, which all ruled that I was lowest possible for reoffending, uh, which made me feel good because it felt like I finally had a piece of scientific evidence that I could show to everybody when I was saying, hey, this is, this is not you know, I'm I'm not a pedophile. This is not I'm not grabbing kids off the street. Um, I think that when people hear that you're arrested for a sex offense, they immediately go to the worst possible scenario. And this having some uh, scientific evidence, at least for the people close to me, it made me feel like I could I could mm -hmm. back up what I was saying. You know, my claims of not being, uh, you know. Uh, some kind of freak and just being a sick person, I felt that I could back it up a bit. Um, that was probably a little, you know, bit of hubris because as that year went on and the legal system played itself out, uh, and, and alcohol was no longer part of my life, and neither neither was pornography for the first time in a long time, I started realizing that you know I did have triggers for pornography and I did have cravings for it, and that wasn't healthy. So um, about a year into the uh, waiting, as the legal system was working itself out, I had a conversation with my lawyer and I said, you know, when I first sat down with you, I didn't think I had a drinking problem. I didn't think that I had a pornography problem. Um, having had clarity, having had a lot of time to talk with professionals, um, 
starting to understand some of the trauma that happened from my youth that I never faced, um, that was uh, somewhat sexual in nature. Um, I think that I have some issues that do need to be addressed. So um, in the summer of 2015, I went to a uh, sex addiction rehab uh, in Texas, and I spent seven weeks there uh, understanding and learning why I had uh, made the choices I did, what um, what those meant, uh, how I could have the tools to not cope with life using pornography moving forward. There were some similarities to alcohol. There were some, you know, major differences. Um, but again, it was another one of those absolutely transformative experiences um, that uh, has led me to be probably in the most healthy place right now that I've ever been in my life. Um, ironically, once I once I took all of these things uh the, the counseling here in Maine, both group and one-on-one, -on -one, and my two stays in inpatient rehab, uh, you know, and became a much healthier person. Then it was time to me to face the legal music. And I was so happy that I was in a, finally in a clear headspace and understood what happened. And I could talk to the judge about what happened. Um, she ended up uh, sentencing me to uh, eight years with all but nine months suspended. Um, I ended up serving six months of those in county jail. Um, and while I was there, that was when I started to write the book that was uh, released today. So you've had quite a journey and a lot going on. Uh, one of the things you had just said reminded me of something that I read in your book, and it was really that the piece about the distinction between um, your porn addiction and what you saw as folks who are pedophiles. Um, and I think when we were talking just now, you said something like you're not a freak or there was some kind of comfort in knowing that you had some evidence to be able to show people there's this distinction. Talk a little bit about how fuzzy that line can be um, what age around what age did it turn out that some of the people you were chatting with were um, when you were convicted? I don't remember if you said the age yeah, in the book yeah. or not. Uh, the the uh, person um, who they were able to locate when I was when I was um, at my sickest, I was talking to women in the middle of the night on a uh, chat room cam to cam kind of thing. Although I had established a way to show a video that wasn't me, um, was a much better looking younger person, um, who, uh, good looking women responded to. And, uh, through, you know, talking through this avatar, um, there were women who, you know, would turn the conversation sexual, or I would steer the conversation into a sexual place. And most of the time, there was never any doubt in my mind that these women were well over 18 years old. Um, but when I started to really get at my most critical, and I was just manipulating them and seeing what I could, how far I could push them, I stopped screening for ages. As long as they looked like they were uh, post-pubescent, 
Uh, that's all I really, that's, that was my criteria. Uh, if I saw somebody who looked like a kid, I'd, I'd pass right by them. And, uh, one of the, one of the things that I did when I would talk to these women, as I was finishing the conversations, once I got them to a place where they would, uh, take off their top or they would, you know, uh, satisfy themselves on screen for me, I would take a couple screen captures and treat them as trophies to show that I was able mm-hmm. to convince this person to do this. Um, it was, it was never fun for me. It was never, uh, rewarding for me or fulfilling for me. If a woman would just sit there and say, Hey, I'm here, let me take my top off for you. Uh, that, it was, it was the, the challenge. challenge. It was the, the challenge. It was yeah. the power. It was the chase. Um, it was the ability. It was more. It was more fulfilling when they said no. I'd never do anything like that. And then I'd spend the next thirty minutes uh, figuring out a way to get them to do something like that. That's where the the success felt. And so I would take a couple screen captures, um, or at the very end, even uh, take some short videos just to uh, have a trophy of my conquest, uh, much like the trophies I had hanging up on my wall at work to prove that I was uh, worth something, to prove that I, I could mm-hmm. I could set a goal and reach an achievement. And uh, I, you know, I did not, uh, I did not care about the line of 18 years old uh, being, a place that you cannot go under when it comes to um, sexuality and doing things like that with somebody. And the police, when they seized my computer, um, found that one of the files, I had probably 20, 25 uh, photos and, and movie clips. They found that uh, tracking through all of them, they thought that three of them might be underage. And they were able to confirm that one actually was. It was a 14-year-old female from California. Um I was shocked when I found out she was 14 years old, um, but I never asked because I don't think I wanted to know. As long as it looked like, as long as it looked like it was a sexually mature female, I was good. And the fact that there are plenty of sexually mature females who have not reached a place of legality mm-hmm. was of little concern to me in the middle of the night when I was drunk and didn't care and just needed something to make myself feel better. It was one of the things that I found um, the most raw and honest in your book when you talked about that Um, and that, that really your addiction was so compelling that you just didn't think about age. You weren't seeking out underage youth, uh, underage women. You just didn't care if they ended up happening to be under that line. And I thought that that was helpful information because I imagine that there are readers out there who may be in a similar place or people who don't identify as having a porn addiction, but maybe surfing around and not giving thought to what are the consequences if you're surfing around and you're looking at porn and some of those people are under 18. That's absolutely true. When I was arrested, um, the police were able to say that I had hundreds of files on my computer when in reality I had probably completely downloaded five or six. Um, But in downloading, I may find a folder online that there's one 
there's one file in a folder of a hundred files that I want to look at, and maybe there are ways around this, and I'm not I'm not computer savvy enough, but I would have to start downloading the entire folder, and then I just stop the downloads of everything except one file I was interested in, and unfortunately. All of those other 99 files, even if only two or three percent have downloaded, uh, that counts to the police as a down as a download. Mm-hmm. Even though I couldn't actually see what any of those files were, and some of them had absolutely horrific names of things that I would never want to see. Um, but at that point, I what I didn't care about the stuff I wasn't going to see because I told myself I'm just not going to see it. I don't care what it's called. Uh, you know, if it's if there's a video that says you know seven year old uh, in the shower, and then a video that says you know man being beheaded, and then a video that is the one that I want, and I have to down start downloading all three. I just thought to myself, well, I don't care. I'll start downloading mm-hmm. all three, and once they all start downloading, I'll delete the, those those first two. Um, and even though I never saw the first two, because they started to be downloaded on my computer, they were considered downloaded by uh, law enforcement. Um, because you can't do that. I mean, that's just the in 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 my. Uh, unclear state that I was in for far too long. That was not something that I would think about. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I sort of had lived a life for a very long time where, well, you know, it's just easier to say sorry if I do something wrong than to ask permission. And I got away with that for way too many years. And I think that was part of what clouded my judgment um, was because I thought that I was bulletproof. Uh, my narcissism was raging at that point. And uh, the idea that, well, I want this one file, I will download all three and I will delete those first two before they're even viewable. Nobody's going to say anything. Uh, and that's just that's just some incredibly faulty thinking um, of a very sick person and a person who let himself get too sick. Do you think that there's anything that a healthcare professional could have done any step along the way before the arrest to either recognize that you were in trouble either with alcohol or porn or um, assess for it? Is it something that any any healthcare provider could have helped you with? Or what you know, do you think? I, t- I tell you, Kim, I ask myself that so much because part of the reason for writing this book is to hopefully stop somebody before they get to the critical point that I was at. And could somebody have done anything or said anything? And I don't know specifically porn or alcohol related if that could have happened, Um The only thing I can think is that along the way, uh, as I was diagnosed bipolar or as I was um, sitting in therapy, and I had been in therapy off and on for 15 years before I was ever arrested um, for anxiety, for just dealing with the crap that comes in everyday life that I sometimes had trouble dealing with, um, I was very careful to always present to my therapist and to my doctor a picture that I thought they wanted to see or a picture that Mm -hmm. wouldn't get me in trouble. Um, I found out, and this isn't in the book because I only found out very recently about this, at least in Maine, as a therapist, 
or as a as a person going to a therapist, I can tell my therapist that I have a pornography problem. I can even tell them that it may be that it's uh, straying into illegal territory, and they don't necessarily have to report it. Uh, because there is no direct victim. And you can debate whether that's right or wrong, but I think that if I would have felt that I had a safe space and if I would have been pushed a little bit, um, I don't. I think that the, the therapists that I had over the years uh, didn't push me enough to be honest about what some of my issues were. And one of the uh, sex therapists that I had in Southern California, uh, his name was Stephen Wolfson. He actually uh, helped design the uh, sex offender uh, program for New Zealand. Um, brilliant man. He pushed me about things that happened to me when I was earlier, earlier when I was a kid um, and made me actually face the fact that I had a babysitter who uh, did things to me that I pretended had never happened. Um, the therapist that I have now, uh, the first time I've actually had a female therapist, she has been absolutely brilliant with me because she has a good BS detector and, and will call me or we'll we'll say okay you've just talked for 10 minutes and it's been kind of boring um can you you know let, let's let's really talk what's going on and i feel like those are safe places where mm -hmm. i've always felt like going to a doctor you know i don't know how many health officials have asked me in my life uh do you feel suicidal and you're just i'm just smart enough to know never to say yes because I know that the moment that I would ever have, and I have been suicidal in the past, I knew the moment that I admitted it, the game changed. Well, you lose exactly. power so in a way. So why would I, and somebody like me who did not have well-defined survival skills and really just lived by the mantra, as I mentioned in the book, just survive till tomorrow, tell them what they need to hear, do what you need to do, survive till tomorrow. Um, why would I ever open up? to somebody like that. And why would I ever open up about, uh, you know, my real drinking problem or uh, my real pornography problem? It's simply easier to say, no, I don't have a problem. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm fine. I don't have a problem with any, uh, anything sexual in my life. Let's move on to the next thing. Uh, and they simply, for the most part, accepted it. Um, had I been pushed back then, had I believed that I was in a safer place, that I could have a real discussion and it wouldn't radically change my life right, right there, mm -hmm. maybe that would have helped. Um, I can't say for sure. I would love to go back and see if that would have helped. But I don't think I ever felt safe to really address my major problems because I knew that that would have forced change that I wasn't ready for because I hadn't even had conversations about the issues I needed to have conversations mm -hmm. about. I mean, it brings up a good point. Where can people who are, are struggling with these things um, go to be able to get help? And I, and I think about, um, you know, when you think about folks who are attracted to children, so taking it to an even darker place, imagine that someone is attracted to children um, and they haven't done anything. They haven't touched anyone and they're not looking at porn, but they have an attraction and they want help. 
um, where can they feel safe seeking help without it then triggering a cascade of things um, that may make them fearful to even seek help for it? Um, and I don't know the right answers, but I, but I think you're right that there are things that as healthcare professionals, we as healthcare professionals need to do a better job creating safe spaces for people to talk about these things and also asking questions, um, you know, during annual um, visits to be able to ask people um, and whether it's done in a questionnaire or whether it's a conversation, um, asking people whether there are aspects of their life where they feel like things are a little out of control. Um, and I'm not sure that you would have ever said yes if you were assessed, because it sounds like for you, some of it is a game of power back then. Um, and that you, if you were to share that vulnerability, you would have lost some power. Oh, absolutely. In that, in that relationship. That's a lot about what I work on now is working on empathy and working on real intimacy and letting my guard down a little bit. Um, you know, just this this past weekend, I was uh, flipping around on cable, and one of my favorite movies uh, is A Beautiful Mind, and uh, it was on, and I decided not to watch it because I just didn't want you know somebody to walk in the room and see that I was crying. It's one of those movies that can make me cry at the drop of a hat, um, and I'm still not comfortable anybody seeing me cry at a movie. Because mm -hmm. it makes me have to address how I'm, how this you know piece of art moved me, and I'm you know despite everything I've been through over the last five years, I still have issues you know with something that simple. Um, but thankfully, I now have safe places to talk about them and to address them. And my my therapist and I spent thirty minutes yesterday morning talking about the fact that I couldn't be vulnerable enough to watch that movie and, uh, and, and let it affect me with the fear that somebody might come in the room. Hmm. Now, how did your experiences when you were incarcerated, did, did they influence your willingness to trust healthcare professionals at all? Um, did you have interactions there while you were in jail? I was, I went to jail in January of 2016. So it was almost two years from my arrest to uh, my incarceration. During that time was when I went to the, the uh, 17 weeks of, of mm -hmm. rehabs and I went through a lot of therapy. So I, I felt very good about the, uh, the, uh, healthcare system at that point. Um, I was uh, shocked at how poor it was within the jail system itself. Well, that's what I was curious because you had said you were, were feeling really, really in a good, healthy place, you know, when you were sentenced and then and then incarcerated. So I was curious, right. what was well, it like? Keep in, keep in mind, I, I went to county jail. In Maine, if you serve nine months or less, you go to jail, not prison. And I've been told by people who I was incarcerated with who had done bids in prison that the system is better there. Jail is seen as a place to house people who have had probation violations and are going to see a judge sometime in the next week. Uh, they are places for people who are awaiting larger trials that will absolutely send them off to prison. Um, or they are just 
you know, the drunk of the night and, you know, they have, they're doing their 24 hours. Um, so I don't have a real understanding of a long-term incarceration system at the county jail level where nine months is the most you're there. And, you know, I, I spent six months there. Um, there was about 15 people, 12 to 15 people usually in the pod that I was in. Uh, probably 10 of us needed medication um, every night. Now, I had to have my medication switched uh, because uh, one of them uh, was an opiate that they wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't allow within the system. And the other, they simply didn't offer. I was able to get a deal where my wife could bring it in for me and I could take it that way, but the allowed uh, list of mental health meds or even pain meds that you could take were very, very small. When uh, I needed to have them addressed, I think in six months, I had two five-minute teleconferences with the jail psychiatrist, or I don't even know where this woman was from or what her credentials were. She was at the other end of a computer screen, and I was in a long line of people to see her for five minutes, say, well, my anxiety is a little bit up, but I'm sleeping okay. Okay, well, we're going to switch you to this. And I don't think she had any folder in front of her about my psych history. Um, mm -hmm. I don't, I think that, you know, I could have, I, I was never going to get anything uh, that, that was a major drug from her because they just didn't offer that there because so many people are there on drug violations. Um, it was more, it was, it was, and, and while I was able to get along, it bothered me more that you would see somebody come in with a heroin uh, violation or a meth violation who was basically forced to just detox mm -hmm. laying on a cot um, in general population. Um, they, they were not helped along at all. Um, there was no psych uh, for people. You know, if you're there for two days, that's one thing. But for people like myself who were there six months, seven months, eight months, who are used to counseling or um, having some kind of mental health uh, talk therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, there there's none of that for people at all there. And it's, you know, for somebody like myself who was lucky enough and had the resources to go to these uh, uh, rehabilitation facilities and who had been in counseling outside of jail, you know, I could manage and I had tools and I had skills that I could manage my time there. I, you know, as, as I mentioned, one of the most therapeutic things that I did was write uh, the first draft of this book in jail. Um, the book that comes out today is 91,000 words. The very first draft was 200,000 words, but it was mm. written in pencil into notebooks. Uh, that was that was my therapy while I was in there, uh, just writing this story down. Um, for a lot of people, there is no therapy. There are, uh, it, it was, it was tragic to see. Um, and some of the people who worked in the jail absolutely understood the problem and had a giant amount of sympathy for the situation. And then there were people there who didn't care. It was a job. And as far as they were concerned, anybody who was on the other side of the door was a low-life scum. Um, it's just, it's not a, at least on the county jail level, 
it was not a place where anybody uh, was going to get better. It likely wasn't even a place where anybody was going to maintain. Um, hmm. I had been told going into jail that one of the real problems with uh, our mental health system uh, when it comes to incarceration and it comes to certain offenses uh, is that uh, as far as like sexual offenders go, uh, they don't really keep the high-risk offenders with the high-risk offenders, and the low-risk offenders with the low-risk offenders. And I had that right in the pod that I was in. Um, you know, I talked with people who were child molesters and who had, you know, raped their girlfriends. Um, and I could see myself having already gone through these assessments and been deemed low risk. I was one of the very few people who was actually serving a sentence and not awaiting sentencing. Um, seeing these men who were going to get 10 years and 20 years, um, I could see how somebody like myself, um, who was of a lower risk, could actually be influenced by someone of a higher risk. You don't want to mix those two groups together because it's not people like myself who are going to, you know, spread the good word and help help the people who are higher risk offenders, it's higher risk offenders who are actually going to uh, infect people who are lower risk offenders uh, in, in that kind of situation. And, and it's not just sex offenses. I mean, this is straight across from, you know, every crime you can imagine, whether it be drugs or burglary or anything like this, there are plenty of statistics that show uh, there's a negative influence that jail has there. And that, mm -hmm. that, that could be changed. Now you mentioned um, that when you went in, you'd been on an opiate and then they had to switch you to something else. Did you end up having to detox in jail? No, uh, at this point, I mean, the, the, the meds that I were, were on at the time, um, and I think it was, I think Ativan was the, was the one I'm talking about, if I recall. Ah, okay. um, the, uh, it was more for yeah, anxiety. It was for anxiety. Um, I had to detox a little bit when I went to my first rehab, um, but I, and you know, you know, there wasn't really that much detoxing when it comes to pornography. Um, and, I'd, and I hadn't really been looking at pornography for quite a while, even before I went to uh, the Texas rehab. Um, I did. I thankfully didn't have to go through some of the uh, uh, detoxing um, because of the issues that I had. That I saw people right in front of me in jail who, you know, they couldn't they couldn't feed themselves. Um, because they were so sick and, and nobody was really doing anything about it. Now, when you think about everything that you went through and that your family went through, what are ways that healthcare professionals could have helped be supportive to your wife, to your kids? You know, is there anything that could have been done to help them during this time? Um, and if so, what are your thoughts about that? Well, my, uh, my therapist, uh, you know, wonderful woman, um, as I was heading off to jail and while I was in jail, um, she uh, pushed to have several appointments with the kids and with my wife. Um, my wife uh, so uh, sought out uh, some therapy um, 
And we, uh, you know, we spent a lot of time talking with the kids and I was, uh, without getting into graphic details about what I did, I was, I was upfront with my kids and, uh, they adjusted very well. I think, I think the most traumatic thing for the kids, especially my son, who, um, I think was in second grade at the time, maybe, maybe third, um, the most traumatic thing that happened to him was when the uh, child protective services uh, came into his school two days after I was bailed out of jail without announcing anything and interrogated him far, far worse than I was ever interrogated. Uh, and my, my son is a, is a gentle, nice boy. And the only time I've ever heard him say he hated anybody was the, DHS uh, child protective services worker who came in and uh, sounded like she, and I understand why they do it and I appreciate why they do it. Um, but for uh, this entire situation, for the worst part uh, for my son to be having been questioned by somebody uh -huh. who's supposed to be a protector, um, that, that again tells me that something's probably wrong with the system. Um uh -huh that you know it, it's there, there are ways to handle it um and i don't think that law enforcement and child protective services were working together to look at the case at all i think that they uh absolutely assume the worst from day one and they go in asking about the worst and for somebody like myself who um in all truth it was older female girls that I was looking at online, uh, completely uh, never any offense that had anything to do with hands-on behavior to be interviewing, you know, my uh, eight-year-old son as if I was a serial child rapist. Um, mm -hmm. That's traumatic for a kid. And mm -hmm. I think that, you know, I know they need to get to the bottom of what I may or may not have done, but there was no follow-up from them on how he was doing. There was no thought to how he would be after that kind of an interview. Um, there was there was nothing from them on that end. Uh, I felt like we had to do a lot more picking up of pieces uh, based on what Child Protective Services did to the kids um, as far as trauma goes than anything that I did because I was always very open with them about my situation. So when you think about everything that your family has gone through, what what is different about how you're going to educate your kids, if anything, around issues around addiction. Are there messages that you would share with your kids or other kids about addiction that have been informed by your experiences? Um, and I have to give my wife a lot of credit of how she's raised the kids. One of the things that when I went to search out my magazine, Fame and Glory, um, I really left a lot of it in her hands. Um, I was an absentee father. Uh, absentee husband, um, that gnaws at me, but it's not as bad as it could be because she did an amazing job and, uh, she did an amazing job keeping lines of communication open. Um, mm -hmm. I think that my son who will be uh, 15 here in a couple of days, I think in a lot of ways, he's more comfortable discussing sex with her than with me. Um, which is not 
usual in a family, but I don't know if that would have been any different, even if I was here because, because of the family I was raised in and how things about sexuality or addiction or, or really anything negative, any negative behavior, any skeleton in your closet, you didn't talk about it. And, um, I've been needing deprogramming when it comes to that. Um, thankfully my wife wasn't programmed like that and the kids aren't being programmed like that. Um, I think it's really about communication, uh, from a very early age. And I think it's really letting the kids know they can talk to you about anything and not having them feel judged afterwards. I know that's how mm-hmm. I, why I always kept my mouth shut because I knew a lot of the times what I was thinking, um, th- whether it be an opinion or whether it be an actual truth, I was going to be judged negatively. So it was simply easier to keep my mouth shut. And if, if kids can feel like they're not going to be judged, they're not going to have negative repercussions based on uh, their opinions or something that they did. Um, and there do, you know, when, when negative things happen, there do need to be consequences. But I think that, you know, if you can communicate why you make the decisions you do as a parent and let them know that, you know, hey, guess what? Uh, we're all going to be sexual human beings. You know, we all make dumb mistakes. We almost everybody experiments with drugs or alcohol. Um, And, you know, it's, it doesn't make you a bad person. It doesn't make you a freak. If you have a certain reaction to it, then there's probably more that needs to be looked at. Um, And while my kids are night and day, different from one another they're both really good people and they're both i think uh open to having discussions with my wife and i uh, and especially my wife that uh i could have never had with my parents and ultimately probably did have a little bit to do with everything that happened in the end of me not being open to Mm -hmm. sharing anything negative with anybody you had mentioned earlier that you had been diagnosed um, with a narcissistic personality disorder. And I was curious not to talk about politics like, you know, Democrat or Republican, but what are your thoughts when you hear people throwing around in the media terms like narcissist to label someone that they haven't ever assessed? You know, um, I, when I, when I was arrested, um, it was front page news on the newspaper. I mean, it was six columns, front page news. When my wife brought me home from jail, uh, we drove right by the house because there was a news van there. Um, I have seen so many people have so many misconceptions about what I actually did or what happened to me and label me things that I'm not like pedophile. And I don't think most people even know what pedophile means. Um, I, I, I see, I see terms like that in the media and uh, you know what? I don't know if, if uh, you know, certain people have a narcissist disorder. I don't know them. Um, I don't know right. what their stories are. Uh, I, I, I mean, I can say this. I, I don't know if you remember the old uh, VH1 documentary show, Behind the Music. Uh, there yeah. was not a single happy episode. 
every episode was about this famous person and it you know who who rose to the top of the of the music but industry they were and they were absolutely <laughs> tortured people who were driven to that level and i was only i mean i had a local magazine i was a local politician i see people who whether they're in hollywood or they're you know in washington to be driven to that point i think there has to be a certain percentage of them who are simply wired very differently than the average person and i i couldn't imagine being more tightly wound or more uh more of a mess than i was uh at that one point um and that's i think that's part of the stuff that drives people to to go that far it's what what mm-hmm. drives somebody to open their own business the sense that they can do it better than the next guy so I, I don't think that, you know, there, I, I don't think that some of these personality traits are always negative, but I think when you see people in extreme circumstances, like Hollywood, Washington, um, mm-hmm. these are people who are probably on the far edges of, of, of certain uh, personality spectrums. I was diagnosed as uh, bipolar when I was 24, 25 years old. And that's the one that I hear all the time is, oh, but mm. somebody has a bad day, suddenly they're bipolar. and Or somebody, you know, is a little too hyper about something, suddenly they're bipolar. Um, I, I saw recently that the number one most misdiag- or misdiagnosed condition that people self-diagnosed is a migraine. Everybody really? has migraines. Oh, I can't. I've got a migraine. I could. Well, it, it, it turns <laughs> out only about two percent of people have migraines. The rest of us just have bad headaches now and then. When you look at things like uh, like Tourette's or bipolar um, or even something like pedophilia, people don't understand what these things actually are. They've become societal catch-alls, and mm-hmm. let's put them in this box. And there are, you know, I have been torn apart in my local uh, media and in uh, social media for stuff that I have never done for stuff that I, uh, you know, uh, for for things that I am not. And uh, unfortunately, we also live in a time where, um, you know what, some if one person says I'm a certain thing on Twitter, well, there are just a lot of people are going to believe them. And and uh, sure. it one of the toughest things about my recovery has been really learning to just let go of people who have wrong information about me, and I I am never going to be the person who is allowed to provide them with the correct information. So I have to let it go. And if they want to live in ignorance, there's really nothing I can do about it. And why do I need to waste the time, waste the Mm -hmm. time anyway? I'd rather focus on a book like I'm doing or focus on, focus on Mm -hmm. my website where I can talk to people who are a little bit more open-minded and a little bit more willing to learn. Well, I hope that people will seek out your book. Uh, can you tell listeners the name of yeah, your book? Uh, once again, it's called The Addiction Nobody Will Talk About, um, How I Let My Pornography Addiction Hurt People and Destroy Relationships. Um, and that's available on both Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, and all of their millions of little subsidiaries. Um, and uh, you can also get it through my website, which is recoveringpornaddict.com. 
where the book is more memoir based, uh, the website recoveringpornaddict.com is more uh, resource based, more self help based. I update it two or three times a week with uh, different blog entries, sometimes guest blog entries um, about pornography addiction um, and what a problem it will probably be over the next 10 to 15 years because while i'm not a huge statistics guy if you look at these statistics it is scary uh what porn addiction is going to turn into in the next 10 to 20 years well i really appreciate you taking the time to be on mdash i wish you the best of luck with your book and i'm excited to um see it do well i i would encourage anyone who's listening to buy a copy i read it and found it to be captivating so thank you thank so you much. Thank you so much for having me today. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to MDASH, the healthcare podcast that gives you pause. For show notes about today's episode, visit www.em-podcast.com.